Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Welcome back to Joanna and the Maestro. Maestro, Stephen Barlow, we've had some wonderful questions coming in. I saw that. It's been really heartening because we said, please write in comments and questions. I thought we might get one or two from a great aunt or something. But no, they've come flocking and flooding in. And I would love to start with one today. Have you ever broken a baton mid-performance in anger or in sorrow and desperation? Is that down on the it's print? It's written down but here. Is it? Yeah. Why are my sticks so short? Because at some off. stage, the ends get broken off, so it's down to about 10 inches now. One of the things that always happens to every conductor, and some more than most, is that at some stage in rehearsal or performance, the stick manages to leave your hand and flies into the orchestra. And somebody very, very, in an unamused fashion in the viola section, if it gets to the brass, then you've lost it forever. But someone will stand up and simply pass it back to you rather quietly. And sometimes there has to be a relay if it's in a performance. But meanwhile, you're floundering around like a seal until somebody rather pointedly reaches up and puts it back in your... And then you wipe the blush off your face and get on. <laughs> now, look, look, one of the questions is, who would be Patsy's favourite classical composer? <laughs> no, Patsy. I don't me. know. Can you think? No, you, you should know. Well, I know, I ought to, wouldn't I? In her delusional thing times, she thinks she slept with some of them, but so she, I, I can't, she can't really pick between them. What would she think of the punk rock? Punk rock. Well, she's, she's been around with quite a lot of the people in punk rock. <laughs> no, no, look, that's just stupid. This is the classical composer. The rockers, the big rockers. No, I think she would have. I think she would have walked out with John Tavener. Good. Well, you Grief. know, you know that he walked into that com- that concert or that performance view dressed well, in came... white with beautiful girls on oh, his arm. Oh, he had he drove One a white Rolls Royce. Was he was in a yes. white suit, and he had two wonderfully looking decorous ladies, one on each arm, who were also in white. And he walked all the way up the centre of the aisle of the church to take his seat. What an entrance. (laughs) (laughs) I still think Patsy would have liked Borodin with his rather sort of hectic dances and things. I think she would have liked that a bit better. I wouldn't have guessed any of that, but you wrote her. I did not. Jennifer did. Yeah, I know, but you, you, you... Embodied her. Embodied her. What film score? I think I know the answer to this, and I'll give you a clue always gives you goosebumps. Ah, no, well, well, there's two, really. Vertigo. I often watch that again pretty much to hear that fantastic haunting score. But the other one, of course, is Once Upon a Time in the West, Morricone, Sergio Leone. It's as good as anything. I like the theme from The Godfather. I love that. I always love that. Yeah, I, I knew you would. You knew I would. Thank you, maestro. And talking of sound, I'd like now to slip effortlessly, this is a segue, you'll never be able to catch me, into sound engineering and sound recordists. Amazingly, Simon, <laughs> Simon Kohlmeyer's written in. Now, Simon's the son of a musician. He, his father was violin with, which, which orchestra was in the, it? In the, in, in the Ulster Orchestra. And you'd, you'd worked with his father? Yes, yes, you? yes. Anyway. I, no, I, I, I've conducted them many times and I remember him well. And Simon has remembers me well because... Every day on, on these trips I do, he's clipping some instrument to my body to record my velvety voice. And Simon's written it, and he says, did the composers write from the perspective of the conductor, from the perspective of the conductor standing in the centre of the semicircle, i.e., is that what they heard in their head is what the conductor was hearing, or from much further back as an audience member? 
when all the instruments eventually married together. That's really fascinating. That's a really <laughs> analytical kind of question, isn't it? Dear Simon, it's a cracker of a question, and only a sound engineer would go straight to the to the nub of something like that. And of course, the answer is that until, realistically speaking, recording, all of us in the music business have used our instincts about how to balance and how to composers, how to orchestrate, so to play off one instrument against another. Now, let me just go back to this point, that in the layout of the orchestra these days, and it's long been the case that people who direct a performance will be in the middle of the ensemble. Now, the conductor is in probably the best position to judge how the balance is. Now, I know I'm talking to a sound engineer, so you know that cannot be the best place to judge how the sound of instruments marry together. So, by and large, you'd really expect composers to have heard a lot of concerts. I hope they have. It's indispensable because you must be in an auditorium and choose the place where you listen to a concert carefully and weigh up where it is best in a particular hall to hear a piece from. So imagine a young composer at the back of a hall listening to a large orchestral piece, say a big Stravinsky, Rite of Spring or something. That is the best place to work out how the orchestra is coming over, how, how the sounds are blended within a particular hall. And of course, it will sound different in every hall. So this is really quite complicated, but the truth of it is you try and imagine best how to blend all the sounds that you have. And when Handel directed the massive forces involved in the first performance of The, the Messiah, he would have imagined how it should sound and then, of course, standing there or sitting there as an organ, which is what I think he did to direct, he would have experienced really for the first time the reality of so many people. And, of course, he made a good guess. So he tried to get as many violins as he could to uh, balance with the huge number of would singers. He have, would he have marked the volume? I don't think I mean that. No. On, on, didn't, would no. he have marked the... Uh, no, 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 Bach and Handel pretty much. Didn't simply, mark things. Simply wrote forte and piano. At the top they would write in a singing manner or swiftly or something. But that's the only advice they would give. Is that right? Yes, they, they would. So have. they would never say, I really want the trombones to come hurling out here. No, no trombones in Bach. No, um, obviously, you, this but, was just a trick question. Yeah, but, I popped that no, in for those of no. you who are suddenly nodding off and going, can we really bear <laughs> to hear Joanna the Maestro? Is Joanna really as stupid as she thinks? Yes. And is the Maestro very clever? There were no trombones in Joanna's <laughs> day. No, but the business of blending, i.e. orchestrating, composing, and because a composer fundamentally composes notes or imagines notes, and then begins to construct the orchestration. So you will be thinking of the orchestral colour and you will use your instincts to do so to the best of your ability. You will guess what will work best. Now, the conductor's job is to tinker around with that balance in the score if it is not quite working. 
Now, certain orchestras might have a horn section, which always plays big, i.e. slightly loud. They say the Chicago Symphony Orchestra brass section is one of the biggest and brassiest in the world. And it's true, they can play very loud, but I think they can also play very softly, of course. My point is, when a conductor comes in and hears a little too much brass, and Strauss famously said to conductors, keep your left hand in your waistcoat pocket until you have to take it out to put your hand up, showing the brass that they are too loud. <laughs> so it's a conductor's job then to make the balance work. And I want now to jump to a small friend of mine, Miranda Priestley. She's grown up now, but I knew her when she was only a little girl. I met her then and uh, she made me a beautiful bracelet. Miranda, thank you. You've made me lots of lovely things and I wear them to this very day. And she <laughs> says, what do you think the future of conductorship looks like? Do you see lots of up-and-coming young talent? How do you start? Can you become a maestro? Are there more maestros coming? And how do you start composing music? Can you condense this into just about four or five minutes? (laughs) Well, as long as we enjoy orchestras as they are, and I I can't see any... any, I, I think orchestras are going to survive for a very long time. For a start, there's several hundred years, which is a lot it's a big percentage of our civilization's age. The culture of our music is largely about the development of the orchestra. And I think it's something we still celebrate. And you can see the, the benefits around having so many instruments in the orchestra. So many people still have a lot of choices of instrument to play. And I don't think we're going to be rolled over by electronics anytime soon. So there will always be the role for a conductor, won't there? That's the point. So I think that's an, that's an easy one. Please keep writing in. Please keep phoning in, telephoning. Please keep putting those little scrumpled notes through the door. We love it. We'll answer them all in time. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited.